Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. On today's episode, we're taking a look at the top 10 most common mistakes that I see and hear on tracks I get to mix. All right, so these are mostly recording mistakes or production mistakes, Um, not necessarily like things sound bad or I wouldn't have used that mic. This is more on the geeky side of things, but they're really common mistakes that I see when people send me tracks to mix. So we're going to take a look at those. We've got a couple bonus ones too, but we're going to take a look at our top 10 and how you can prevent this from happening to you. All right, so these are in no particular order, but I will say this first one is really common, and that is incorrectly rendered tracks. And there are a couple problems that could fall under this category. Number one, maybe it's the wrong file format. You know, a lot of people who are working in Logic use AIFF. Personally, I think we should all just be using Wave by now. Um, Logic, I believe, does default to AIFF. A lot of people are using Logic these days, so my personal advice would be to go in and change your default to Wave. It is the industry standard, and it will ensure compatibility through pretty much any DAW. Now, most DAWs these days can also work with AIFF files, but a lot of times it will convert them to wave. So rather than having to go through that conversion process, which takes time and, you know, again, theoretically could degrade some quality, just record in wave from the beginning and everything will be good. Now, another problem I see really commonly with, uh, you know, rendering mistakes is stuff not all rendering from 0.0, meaning all the tracks, regardless if there's any information in there, the easiest way to do this is just render everything from the very beginning of the session all the way to the very end. So all the tracks are the same length. Nothing is going to be out of place. You know, it's not that much. Some people will say like, oh, well, this thing only happens in the intro. Do I really want all that blank space at the end? It's like, it's fine. Okay. Hard drive space is so cheap, you know, per megabyte these days. It's fine. It's almost just better to ensure that everything is lined up and locked in and everything is rendered from (laughs) 0.000. Another problem I see is there's no space at the beginning of the song, meaning that music starts right at 0.0.000. So in my opinion, everything should have a slight count off. Just put a measure of count off in there just to make sure there's not going to be any issues. Another thing is that some DAWs actually will put in a little bit of space on the WAV file if music starts right at zero, meaning the tracks will not actually line up. Now, it does this to protect you, but then I have to go in, zoom in, cut out that space, and move the tracks. It's kind of a little bit strange, but just I would recommend putting a measure of count off at the beginning of your session, whether you're on a click or not, you know, it's fine. Just put a little bit of space at the beginning and render everything from zero. Include the space in there. It's okay. I can cut it out. Um, And similarly, I also find that there's not enough tail at the end of tracks sometimes where certain sounds will get cut off abruptly. And it's like, am I supposed post to fade this or do they want it to get cut off abruptly you know that can be confusing for me as a mixer if stuff abruptly cuts off at the end um, now you don't necessarily have to build in final fades but at least tell me you know at least tell me like hey please fade this song out you know because otherwise I'm just going to assume that what you send me is what you want and a lot of times that's not the case when it comes to the end of the song And finally, another problem I see is, and this is really common with Logic users, that every track is in stereo, even if it's a mono track. 
Um, now, there are some things you can do to get around this. I'm not going to go into that, but please Google that and look that up because, especially if you're a Logic user, because that's just kind of annoying. I'm going to have to split up the tracks, and when I import it, it's going to import as a mono or stereo, either dual mono or stereo track. I have to go through and check, delete the stuff that's, you know, truly mono versus the stuff that's actually stereo. You know, it just takes a lot more time. So if you have a mono track, like a bass or, you know, a snare or whatever, please just send it on a mono track and make sure that you're not sending me a stereo track for everything, right? Another reason for this is that, like, if I have to use stereo plugins, it takes more DSP. So I'm going to have to split that up to use just a mono track on something that is truly mono. Hope that makes sense. Number two. I can't really believe this is a problem, but it's surprisingly common. Um, 16-bit tracks. You know, it's not 1995 anymore. Can we please stop using 16-bit? <laughs> like, uh, everybody has the ability now to do 24-bit audio, and I think we all should, especially with, you know, the sound of modern music often requiring a lot of compression or saturation to get that modern sound, you know, 16-bit can be a problem. If you're not really familiar with the technical details, the bit depth primarily affects the dynamic range capability of the audio. 16-bit audio has a dynamic range of 96 dB, so from 0 to negative 96, right? Now, that you might say at first, like, oh, 96 dB down, that's fine. Well, your tracks aren't recorded at 0, you know what I mean? We'll record our tracks at negative 12 or negative 18 or negative 20 or something like that. So that number drops quite a bit. And then if I have to add a bunch of compression or turn the level up or whatever, this can be really problematic, especially if you're recording something really dynamic like a vocalist, right? Let's say I have to turn up a verse part by 20 dB and then I add another 10 dB of compression and then I add some saturation the noise problems that can exist down at the bottom of 16-bit audio can start to become really noticeable. You might not think it's noticeable, but believe me, it is. It was noticeable enough, and it has been noticeable enough for me to include on this list. So please, just use 24-bit, okay? The file size is not that much bigger, but 24-bit audio has a dynamic range of 144 dB. So that takes care of a lot of those problems. And I mean, in Nuendo and Pro Tools, we can use 32-bit floating point, which I say, why not? Um, it adds even more dynamic range. So you will never really have issues with that low noise floor being brought up. I never have complaints about that. Um, so might as well use the highest bit depth you can. I say, why not? Number three, sloppy edits. Now, this is something that I can't specifically advise all of you out there on other than to say, get better. <laughs> um, because, I, you know, it, it can be all kinds of things. It can be bad fades or no fades on various tracks. It can be pops and clicks due to bad edits or missing fades. You know, there's no crossfades between, you know, different comps. This can be bad breath editing on vocals where you hear double breaths, you know, like, right? Like, because they didn't, you know, choose a breath. This can be bad timing correction. It can be stuff out of phase with each other. You know, it can be even that, which is not so much an edit, but a kind of a production decision, right, to make stuff in phase, which I kind of expect the tracks I get to be checked for phase, even though I check it anyway. You know, come on, it doesn't take that long to 
flip the old polarity button and make your bottom snare in phase with your top snare mic. Uh, and the cardinal sin of editing is multi-miked stuff not lining up. Okay, it, it's actually pretty surprising how often I see that, where if you have drum tracks, you've got you know, eight or ten drum tracks, and it was, it's clear that they've been edited, but not correctly. Okay, the only way... The only way to edit multi-miked signals in terms, you know, of timing correction or something like that is to link them together as a group and you edit from the closest mic. Because of the speed of sound, it will arrive at your kick in, your snare top first, right? Your tom mics, right? So you don't edit from the overheads or from the room mics because they're going to be delayed. You always edit from the closest mics, which is going to be kick, snare, tom, tom, hi-hat right? Uh, it's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I like having a hi-hat mic, but you have to link the tracks, okay? You can't just edit them individually. It's not going to work. They have to be aligned at all times. Now, there are definitely some issues I've seen in various DAWs with this where things can get unlinked and whatever, but like you have to stay on top of that and make sure they are linked. Um, you can run into a ton of problems if you go through and edit drums without them linked. And a similar problem is if you are doing any multi-miked or multi-tracked sound that you're trying to do elastic audio or warping or any form of time stretching on the audio, right? A lot of DAWs have the capability to do time stretch or time compression, expansion, any sort of warping feature as opposed to cutting and moving, right? It's actually stretching the audio. But a lot of DAWs don't have the ability to do sample-accurate, phase-accurate warping on multi-channel signals, right? That's really important to know because sometimes I'll get tracks like acoustic guitar or something where there's two mics, and I can tell that they've been warped in time, and they sound crazy weird together. One mic will sound fine, the other mic will sound fine, but together they do not sound fine. Now, I always make sure and check if this was actually intentional, because sometimes it can sound kind of cool on certain sounds, but a lot of times it sounds really bad. So just be aware of that, that you know, time warping really will only work on single audio files. Now, like I said, I don't necessarily have specific advice on these things other than to just keep working on your skills, try to get better, cleaner edits. I would like to come out with some sort of video course or YouTube video or something where I talk about preparing a session for mixing in which I could go over some of these things, some of the edit issues I see, some of the rendering issues I see. I'd like to do that in the future, and I think that would at least give you some advice on, you know, cleaning up your edits, making sure everything is tight and clean and ready to be mixed. Number four, noise. Now, this one is really, really common, and I think that most of it comes from either bad gain staging or by using 16-bit audio. It's really common to get tracks that are noisy, and it's all kinds of noise. It's hiss, it's hum, it's weird digital noise from the digital noise floor. It's all kinds of stuff, and I don't exactly, again, I don't exactly have specific advice to help you in every single scenario, but 
One of the most important things you can do is have good gain staging. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more on another point. Um, But make sure you're not recording super quiet or super loud. There's a sweet spot in there where your tracks can exist and they're hot enough to prevent some of these noise floor issues, but they're not so hot that they're going to clip. It's also really common for me to get noisy electric guitar tracks and noisy keyboard tracks or synth tracks. And this is often also a gain staging issue, but usually in the guitar chain, not necessarily in the recording chain, right? Where you'll have low output pickups and you're sitting near gear and you're getting interference from the gear and you're using, you know, poorly shielded cables and you're not using a buffer to send your signal over a long distance. I mean, there's so many issues that could pop up in a guitar rig, but, uh, you know, I have worked very, very hard to try to make guitars super quiet in my studio. And I've actually got an episode planned to talk specifically about that, how to get very low noise guitar tracks, right? Um, But it's really, really common. And there's some other issues, obviously, like the amp could be noisy, pedals, certain pedals can be noisy. Uh, And if you do your job well, then you can still use those things. You know, if you do edits really well, or for example, if you've got a pedal board and you've got a volume pedal, you can turn down the volume pedal between passages to cut the noise. Um, There are lots of tricks you can do, but a lot of times it just ends up being you know, a combination of a lot of factors, bad cabling, bad signal to noise ratio. You know, you might not think this whole thing is a big issue, but again, similar to the 16-bit audio problem, once I add EQ, compression, saturation, whatever, that noise floor can come up a lot. So even if the noise seems super quiet on the raw tracks, once mixed, it can actually become quite a big problem. And I'm going to have to do some edits or noise reduction. You know, Isotope RX is absolutely my savior on those tracks <laughs> because I will get guitar tracks or vocal tracks or bass or whatever it is with noise and there's not a whole lot I can do other than run it through Isotope RX to clear up some of that noise and still retain the quality of that signal because sometimes edits are not enough. Sometimes the noise exists. You know, a common one that I find is on piano, um, someone will use a Nord or some sort of keyboard and they'll play a chord and as that chord is sustaining out, there'll be hiss or noise on the tail of those chords. And if I'm just if I just so happen to compress that piano a lot and that noise comes up, there's going to be hiss at the end of every single chord. And that's a big problem. So what I have to do is put on Isotope RX early in the chain, usually first, and I have to get rid of the noise and then use compression and all that. It would be better, though, if you just recorded, you know, at a higher level Again, good gain staging, uh, you know, all of that. And then I can compress the piano as much as I want uh, because a lot of times pianos sound really cool when they're heavily compressed, right? A lot of keys sounds can sound really cool like that. Rhodes, Wurlitzer, et cetera. So just be aware that you might not hear that noise on the raw tracks, but if you crank it up, if you listen to the tails of things, the tail end of guitars as they're fading out, the tail end of keys sounds, check to make sure there's no noise. Number five is overcompression. Now, this is actually not as common as many of the other things on this list, but it still can be really, really problematic to deal with. Uh, And it's really less common on things like vocals and more common on things like drums 
or guitar, especially with modern, you know, amp modelers like AxeFX or Kempers or things like that that have a lot of these kind of like almost pre-mixed guitar sounds. I'm getting a lot more compressed guitar sounds these days, and it can be really hard to deal with. Sometimes it's like like a ton of compression. <laughs> uh, so just be aware of that, that over-compressing your tracks can be a problem. Now, oddly enough, sometimes I get vocal tracks that are like under-compressed, like they're so dynamic that I can have noise floor issues, like on a verse or a quiet section of some kind. So just be aware of that, that sometimes under compression or at least not editing and using clip gain to turn up the quiet sections, that can be really problematic. Again, especially if you're on 16-bit audio. But, you know, there are a lot of people who want to get into the practice of compressing on the way in, and that's great. I fully endorse that practice. I do it all the time. But there are certain things that are kind of you know, uh, holy grails, don't touch them too much, right? Things like snare or vocal. If you compress those things too much on the way in, there's not a whole lot you can do to undo it. Snare can be really tough because you're going to be dealing with bleed. Now, drum room mics, if you crush those, I can probably work with it. You know, it's, it's a cool sound. But for example, on a snare, if it's too compressed, I'll have a problem trying to gate it or get some of that bleed out. Pretty common practice is to, you know, use transient designers or gates or expanders or whatever, and then compress that gated sound. So if you're concerned about, you know, over compressing something, just don't compress it, right? Or uh, use a very light, transparent, quick kind of compressor. I think a great option for most people out there, especially if you're just getting into tracking is something like a distressor. It has a great LED display of how much gain reduction is happening, and you can see pretty easily, like, oh, wow, I'm compressing a lot, you know? Whereas sometimes the meters, the VU meters on, like, classic compressors aren't really accurate or they're not necessarily indicative of how it sounds. You know, it might look like you're just compressing a little, but it might sound like a lot of compression. So people can kind of get fooled by that where they're like, well, I'm, I'm barely, I'm barely compressing. It's like, well, that's what the meter tells you, but how does it sound? You know? Uh, so I highly recommend just being very careful on, on some of those, you know, really important sounds like snare and vocal. Now, again, if you send me highly compressed bass guitar or highly compressed, uh, drum room mics or highly compressed backing vocals, I might not complain as much, but again, coupled with some of the other problems like noise floor issues, uh, like 16 bit audio, the compression can kind of be a huge problem. <laughs> um, so when in doubt, don't compress something at all. If you are going to compress something in order to control it a little bit, just make sure that it's appropriate and gentle and, you know, be extra cautious among the holy grail sounds. Another really common one is acoustic guitar. Uh, please just when in doubt, don't compress acoustic guitar, right? It's it's a very sensitive instrument to compression. Uh, it, it starts to sound really aggressive if you compress too much, especially on strumming. And also toms. There's another thing that is very sensitive to bleed. Uh, and I've gotten tom tracks that have compression on them and the bleed is just ridiculous and out of control. Again, that's something I would rather keep totally uncompressed 
and then I can edit, gate, do whatever I need to do, and then compress if I need to, okay? I don't mind compression on things, right? Like, I use analog compressors. All of you out there know this, but there are certain things that are kind of untouchable, and toms are definitely one of those. I don't like compressing toms on the way in. So, all this to say, you have been warned. Be very, very careful with your compression. Number six is stuff is recorded too dark or dull, or it has way too much low end. Now, let me tell you a quick story. The very first time I worked with a Nashville producer and he had a label project and they came in and we recorded here in my hometown, that was one of the main comments that he gave me after the session. He was like, listen, everything sounds great. It's just all too dull. And I was like, oh, wow, what do you... Can you be more specific? Like, I want to make sure and not do this in the future. He's like, oh, I mean, everything sounds great. It's fine. I'm just going to have to brighten up a lot of this stuff in the mix. And that just takes extra time and blah, blah, blah. He's like, I think you're maybe choosing microphones that are too dark because in the room it sounds cool, but it's not really mix ready. And that was a hard lesson for me to learn, but ultimately he was right. Um, now, that was years ago. That was probably 2014 or 15, but he was right. And I have since learned the value of really clear, bright, articulate sounds that aren't harsh. It's also something that I have learned is indicative of high-quality microphones, right? There are a lot of microphones on the market that I would classify as bright-sounding, but a lot of times what I find is the lower-quality or cheaper uh, microphones that are bright are also harsh, especially once you start processing them. But something that is really common in high-quality, really well-made microphones, um, stuff from Soundelux or from Heiserman or from Wunder or from Neumann, uh, they are bright and you can even add more brightness and they don't get harsh. Another thing that we've talked about on the show before is how clarity is not just a quality of being bright, right? Like clarity, you can have clear lows and unclear lows. You can have clear mids and unclear mids. And that's another thing I find in really nice quality gear is that they have clarity in all the ranges even if it's not necessarily classified as a bright sound. You know what I mean? Like, you can have a dark mic or a darker mic that is clear. And so it doesn't come across as being super bright because the lows and mids and high mids are all very clear. Now, another part of this is making sure that your room is well-treated because if your room sounds muddy or unclear, it's going to make any microphone in there sound muddy and unclear. Now, this is not something, again, I can really specifically go into like what are the problems of your room, but it's something that I can tell you from experience doesn't really happen at super nice, well-designed commercial studios. You can put up almost any mic and it just sounds great and sounds direct and clear. There's not gobs and gobs of room sound on there unless you move stuff really far away. And a lot of professional studios have a shorter decay time than you might think. You know, like you might think that, oh, that room is huge. I bet the decay is huge. Well, Probably not. I mean, those rooms are still well treated. A lot of times all of the walls are treated. A lot of times the ceiling is heavily treated. The only surface that is often not heavily treated is the floor because you got to walk around on it, right? There might be carpet or rugs or something here and there. But in general, there can be a lot of treatment in some of these studios, even very large studios. So 
don't make assumptions about that. You know, you, you got to kind of do your research on that and make sure that your room is treated appropriately for what you're trying to do. And again, it can be really hard to hear some of that unless you realize that's what's happening, right? Like you could listen back to your sound and say, well, I don't hear room sound, right? But in most rooms, especially small rooms, you're dealing with uh, the human ear's inability to detect those early reflections. They're too fast for us to uh, separate as a discrete echo. And so it's actually combining with the main sound, especially, I mean, this is the helmet Haas, you know, Haas effect, precedence effect, whatever you want to call it. Um, if they're under 30 milliseconds, we're not really able to hear that as a discrete echo. It will combine with the original sound. And so what that means is your tracks, you're not necessarily going to hear it as reverb or room sound or echo or delay or something like that. It will just sound muddy and unclear because you're getting smearing, you're getting interference from the room sound, basically. And that can be a little difficult to hear. One thing that you can do to help that is put on a set of nice headphones and listen to individual mics. And you'll be able to tell a little bit better, like, wow, I can actually hear some room sound in that, or I, I can hear some muddiness or some general, like, quality or color that my room is imparting onto my tracks. It, it's a little hard to describe, but I, I do find it a little easier to tell in headphones. Now, I don't want to derail too far, but... Going back to the main point, which is a lot of times we get tracks that are too dark, too dull, or too fat. And there are, I mean, tons of reasons. Like I said, the room thing, but also a lot of times people are miking things too close, which gets a ton of proximity effect, which then makes it have a ton of low end and by contrast, not enough top end, right? So that's another problem. We use a lot of directional mics in the studio because we like the upfront nature of it. We like the isolation but we do run into issues with proximity effects sometimes. And again, if your room is not super well treated, you're probably going to put that mic closer to make sure you don't get too much room sound in it, right? In a bigger room, you have a longer critical distance and you in general will have less room interference because the walls are farther away, right? So there's, there's so many factors here. Another thing is a lot of people uh, that are recording at home or whether they're in a nice studio or not, a lot of them have this idea that you shouldn't use EQ or whatever, that you should just track everything dry. And that's also kind of not true. I mean, I use EQ and compression on the way in, as you guys know. And a lot of times I'm adding brightness to things, especially things like ribbon mics or room mics or overheads or snare or kick or, you know, um, with something like guitar or bass, you know, there's so many things you can you can change on the instrument itself or the amp or the preamp if you're on bass. So a lot of times I'll just change it there. But on something like snare drum, like I find myself always always adding top end to snare drum. It doesn't matter what mic I use. I, I'm almost always adding top end to snare drum. I'm not always adding top end to kick or toms, but sometimes I am. And I'm not always adding top end to overheads, but sometimes I am. Pretty often I am, especially if I'm using ribbon mics. Because again, with ribbon mics, one of the things we like about ribbon mics is their transient quality. They have this nice, thick, kind of pillowy, transient quality as opposed to a condenser mic which has a much faster more articulate transient response a ribbon mic is a little bit kind of slower and squishier sounding 
but ribbon mics tend to be a little bit darker. Not always, but a good portion of the time. So sometimes if I'm using a ribbon mic on overheads, for example, I might have to run them through a Pultec and crank, you know, 670B to get more brightness out of those ribbons. It still has that transient quality that I like, but I, it's really dark, so I have to brighten it up, right? And so I, I do think it's really common. I mean, I mentioned that CLA video on another episode, right, where uh, Chris Ordalgi is boosting like 8 or 10 dB on like every mic. And this is on, you know, a Neve console in a great studio with a great drummer, with a great mics, with a great kit. Like, you're not immune from it just because you're using good gear. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's like top shelf gear. And Chris Ordalgi is still adding tons of top end to things. So it, it's a really common problem. And like I said, it's complicated. It comes from a lot of different sources. I, I do think the cardioid mic, you know, proximity effect thing is a real common reason why, because we have to mic things close to get them isolated. It's just a thing. Like you can't mic a snare drum from three feet away when you've got a whole kit going. It doesn't, it's just going to become a room mic at some point, you know, but putting a mic two inches from a snare drum is going to boost up a ton of bottom end, which will need to be counteracted with either cutting bottom or adding top or both. So anyway, just keep this in mind. It's a lesson that we all kind of have to learn at some point that a lot of times we're going to have to cut bottom and or add top on tracks to make them fit in a mix. Even if they sound great on their own, to make them work with everything else, it's just something that's part of the job. Now, another really bad side effect of things being too dark or too dull is that it will hide problems, right? Like it will hide noise. It will hide bleed. It will hide harshness. It will hide breaths or sibilance or other strange noises from instruments like finger squeaks or clicks or something on bass or on acoustic guitar. So when you brighten those things up, all of these other problems start to be heard. Noise, squeaks, clicks, pops, bleed, all kinds of stuff. So just be aware that, you know, I'm not saying that everything you do has to be bright. Of course not. Like there are tons of records where bright sounds are not the aesthetic, you know. Um, but just be aware that if you're recording something and you plan on brightening it up later or you think to yourself, I'm going to have to cut a lot of low end or brighten it up, you might just check it, you know, like you might check it early on to make sure if you do boost a bunch of top end that you're not going to discover little artifacts that you didn't realize were there, right? Um, especially if you're using things like ribbon mics or dynamics that are a little darker or condensers that are darker or flatter. It can hide stuff, right? That's another reason we've talked about like a lot of bass players will roll off their tone knob because it makes them sound better. It makes them sound subby and cleaner because it hides their finger squeaks and their clicks and their sloppy technique. But that's not really the solution, right? The solution is to get better and don't have sloppy technique. Just, you know, filtering it out is not going to help because now I have no top end to work with on my bass sound. And that makes a lot of things more complicated, like distortion. You can't very easily distort a filtered bass tone and make it sound the same as like a nice, clear P bass running into an Ampeg. It's not the same kind of sound. 
So it's, this is a really deep topic. I probably could do an entire episode about this. And, and I kind of have like the Brightness War episode, things like that. But man, it, it, it's a complicated topic. Me and my audio friends will often talk about this, like the brightness problem, like how bright things need to be sometimes to make them work. Like sometimes adding 10 or 15 dB to a piano or, you know, a vocal to make it sound right for the genre or f- to fit in the mix or something. And then other times... You don't have to add a lot at all. It's very strange. Top end and bottom end, that relationship of, you know, how we balance those things is is very odd. But just be aware, this is one of the biggest problems I find. Tracks that are really dark or dull, and I, I have a hard time doing a lot with them. I, I end up either having to boost a ton of top end, which then reveals other problems, or sometimes it's just not really fixable for me. Like, especially if somebody sends me a bass track where the tone knob has been rolled all the way off. Like, I can't do a lot with that. I can't magically bring top end out of nowhere, right? So when in doubt, it would be better, I think, to get sounds a little bit brighter because it's easier to cut that out, to make something duller than to just pull brightness out of thin air. Okay, number seven. Things are out of tune and they expect me to tune them. And we've talked about this on the show a little bit before. I am not going to fix tuning or timing or edit anything by default as a mixer. That is not really what I'm being hired to do. Now, if it's something really simple, if it's like, oh, okay, the the bass hits a little bit early on the first hit of the chorus and it's going to have better impact if I slide that first hit over. Okay, I'll do that. It takes me five seconds, you know, but I'm not going to spend an hour, two hours editing and tuning all your vocal tracks. So please make sure that if you are sending tracks to a mixer, you don't expect that mixer to edit and tune stuff. That's not mixing, that's editing. And I expect, I assume that what you send me is ready to go, right? Now, Every now and then I will pop on auto-tune or waves tune or something to just tighten up the tuning a little bit. You know, sometimes I'll do it on backing vocals or something like that. But like I said, I'm not going to go in and manually tune stuff or time align or edit your stuff for you. Like I said, I always assume what you send me is ready to go. So make sure if you want those things tuned, you get them tuned however you can. Now, before I move on to the next number, I got to say that another issue I find is guitar tracks or bass tracks that are out of tune, and there's not a lot I can do about that. I mean, sometimes I will put on like wave sound shifter and adjust something up or down a few cents if overall it's too sharp, you know, like capoed guitars that have not been tuned with the capo on, which you have to do. Um, you know, cause if you tune it without the capo and then you put on the capo, it's probably going to be sharp. Um, you know, guitars are very often sharp and same with bass. Like maybe a bass isn't intonated well, or the bassist is, you know, really, really pressing down hard and stuff is going sharp. It's really common for guitars and basses to be sharp and it drives me crazy. Uh, I really try to make sure and get that right on the way in. So just be cautious of that. You know, it, it can take a while to develop your ear on this on the, in terms of like tuning sensitivity. But for me, I, I feel like I'm really sensitive to it. I don't have perfect pitch, but I think I have pretty good pitch. And, you know, it, it's just, man, it drives me crazy. So I will sometimes do that. But again, I can't just magically make a guitar perfectly in tune. That really needs to be done in the recording phase. 
Number eight, weird gain staging. Now, I've talked about this a little bit so far, but I find it's really common to get tracks that are either way too quiet or way too loud. And funny enough, I think it's more common for me to get tracks that are recorded at really low levels. And I'm not really sure why that is. But again, that can be problematic, especially if you're recording at 16-bit, because I'm going to have to probably turn those up. And when I do, oh, look, noise has revealed itself, stuff you didn't really hear. In terms of gain staging, I don't know why it's difficult for people, but I'll make it very simple for you. If you try to set a decent reference level and gain stage things to that level, regardless of what it is, a vocal, a bass, a snare, whatever, you know, you're going to get pretty consistently good tracks. Um, a pretty good reference level is somewhere around negative 12 or negative 15, negative 18, somewhere in that territory, negative 12 to negative 18. Most of us that are using DAWs or interfaces with meters, that's a very specific portion on the meter, negative 12 to negative 18. That's a pretty safe region to record all of your tracks. Now, visually, when you're looking at the waveform, it's really that it's taking up like the middle, oh, maybe there's like half of it in the middle is taken up. There's like a, a quarter on the bottom and a quarter on the top, but the middle half of the waveform is filled with audio. That seems to be kind of a good visual indicator. Maybe not every time. Depends on the sound, of course. You know, obviously things that are really transient heavy like snare drum, a little bit harder to tell exactly what level they are. You know, maybe it's because we're looking more at a peak level than an RMS level for something like that. Now, one of the reasons I think this has become a problem is that you'll see these articles that talk about like, oh, well, we're in digital audio now and we use 24-bit and so we don't have to record stuff super hot. It's like, no, you don't have to, but you can still. And again, I still get tracks that are 16-bit, which is wild to me. Um, so if you are recording in 16-bit, you definitely have to be careful about gain staging and you try to push that gain up until the point where it's kind of as loud as you can stand, but not clipping, you know? Now, yes, in 24-bit, we don't have to worry about it as much, but it's still like if you record a track at negative 40, I'm going to have to turn that up a lot, you know? Like, so it's not difficult, people. Just record at a moderate, you know, negative 12, negative 18, somewhere in that territory. Try not to get peaks over negative six, negative three, somewhere in there. Don't get super close to the to zero because, you know, some converters can really have issues with that. Just try to push the levels up to a healthy point and then just go with it, right? I, I, I It's very strange. I, I don't know why we're still having issues with gain staging. You know, it's, we certainly have preamps on our interfaces that are good enough now to be turned up. I'm not really sure where the disconnect is coming from, but I definitely do get some weird gain staging on tracks. Number nine is stuff is overly split into different tracks or overly tracked out. For example, verse one backing vocal is on a track. Verse two backing vocals on a track. Verse three backing vocal on a track. Chorus one, chorus two, chorus three, bridge backing vocal. And I'll get 10 tracks for one vocalist's backing vocals. Now, I understand there are certain cases where doing stuff like this is actually reasonable. If, for example, the lines cross over each other and one is fading out while the other comes in. I get it. You kind of have to put those on different tracks, but do you really need to put it on 10 tracks? I mean, theoretically, you could put it on two 
right? Like the first one goes and then the second one comes in and then it goes back to the first track and then back to the second track, right? And I also understand it makes sense if you've got like verse guitar tone and then chorus guitar tone and they're different. Okay, makes sense. But it's really common for me to get different tracks that really don't need to be split out, you know? Another problem I see is that I will get stereo things split out into dual mono, like overhead left, overhead right, piano left, piano right. Now, some of this could actually be be caused by a rendering issue or, you know, a, a certain setting that might be selected in your DAW. I know that in Nuendo and Cubase, there's a setting called IXML chunks that you can insert on the export, and that will actually cause importing issues on other DAWs where it will not import interleaved files. It will import uh, you know, dual mono regardless of what the file is. But I'm an interleaved fan. I like stereo stuff to be on a stereo track. It's just easier. Like, I want my piano on a single stereo track. I want stereo synths or stereo overheads or stereo room mics to be on one track, right? So like I did a session recently that was uh, around 150 tracks and I was like, wow, you know, that's a pretty big session. But then when I imported all of it and I realized tons of stuff was split out, like verse backing vocal, chorus backing vocal, and then pretty much anything that was stereo was split out into piano left, piano right, and overhead left and overhead right, room left, room right. And so after combining all of that stuff down, which again, takes me time and I have to do it, uh, it was around 80 tracks when all was said and done. So like almost half the size of the session just by combining these unnecessarily split tracks. I will do splits if I need to, right? Like if you combine all of your backing vocals onto one track from one singer, I'll split them out if I need to. And sometimes I will, right? Like I'll split it out, but it's just easier and it takes up less hard drive space to combine stuff wherever you can. Again, it just makes the most sense if it's all relevant info, if it's all the same, you know, vocalist, if it's the same guitar tone, why split it out, right? Um, I will do the splits if I need to. Just make sure that you're not unnecessarily splitting things to different tracks. And number 10, now this is more of a production critique, but it's something that's actually common enough for me to include on this list. I'll either get too many or not enough microphones on various sounds. For example, I might get three microphones and a DI on acoustic guitar, but on drums I'll get no hi-hat mic, no bottom snare, no kick out, no room mics. It's kind of weird, right? Like sometimes I'll get like unnecessarily over-miked stuff and then undermiked stuff. Now, I know part of this is common with people who only have four, six, or eight channels on their interfaces, but, you know, drums can be tough unless you have some of those essentials, right? Like, I I get that not everybody's going to have the budget and all that, but, you know, like, if you have eight channels on your interface, I would probably rather get eight really good-sounding close mics than like six close mics and two mediocre room mics. Like I said, the hi-hat mic can be really handy. Like a lot of times if you can tell that somebody's recorded drums on uh, an eight-channel interface when you get kick, snare, tom, tom, over, over, room, room. That's really common. Um, There's no kick in and out. There's no snare top and bottom. There's no, you know, hi-hat mic. There's no mono overhead. I would almost rather you have kick, snare, tom, tom, 
overhead, overhead, hi-hat, and then over the kick mic, which is something you guys have probably heard me talk about. I've done some videos on YouTube where I talk about it a little bit. It's a microphone that goes right over the kick drum and is sort of like in the very center of the kit, like equidistant from kick, tom, tom, and snare, and it points at the snare. And that mic is kind of like a glue mic for the whole kit. It, it's kind of a strange sound, but it works really well in the mix. I would almost rather have that because a lot of times if you've only got eight channels in your interface and you're recording drums at home or something, I'm not necessarily going to get a lot of use out of the room mics. I will probably end up using samples to get more room sound on the drums uh, rather than using, you know, a room mic in a room that sounds small. So... You know, it, again, this one's a little tough. It, it's hard for me to say, like, stop recording things the way you do. You know, it's like, well, there's no rules, really. But I'm just saying from my experience, it's common to get things kind of oddly chosen. Sometimes I'll get, uh, like, three or four mics on a guitar cabinet. I, and I'm, I'm like, why? Why do I need all these? I mean, is there a certain blend that you had? And if so, just send me the blend. You know, like, tie my hands. May, blend it how you thought it sounded awesome and then send it to me blended in one channel. You know, I don't need all four of those because sometimes what I'm going to do is just go through the mics and pick the one that sounds the best because otherwise, like, I'm not necessarily going to find your sound by, like, what are the odds? You know what I mean? That we end up with the same blend. Uh, it's pretty slim chances that we do. So like, if you're going to do that, you might as well just blend it and just send it to me. Like if you've got the specific blend in mind, now I might pick one or two, but I very rarely will blend four mics on one sound. That's just asking for phase problems, you know, and sometimes similar thing on electric guitar, I'll get two or three mics, I'll get a DI and I'll get a room mic. And it's like, do I need all this? I mean, you really, is this like really part of the sound? So I think it's funny, but like you don't necessarily have to send me all of that stuff. One thing a, a client I've worked with before, one thing they do that I think is actually really helpful is they'll send me all the tracks, but then they'll send me another folder that has MIDI files and it has DIs for everything. So if there's guitars, I've got a DI for all of those guitars. And if there's keyboards or synths, I've got a MIDI track for all of those. So that's like the backup folder. I think that's a really creative way to do that. And it's like just in case, you know what I mean? In case of emergency, break glass, open up that folder, <laughs> you know? And very rarely will I need to use it because the, the tones that he gets are really nice. But every now and then there'll be a, a piano sound or something that I don't think works as well as he thinks it does in the mix. And so I'll grab the piano MIDI, drag it in and use one of my own sounds. But by default, I just use the tracks that he sends me. And I know for a fact that he uses two or three mics on a guitar cabinet and he uses, uh, you know, 412 cabinets and he might, you know, might mic up different speakers with different mics or whatever. And he'll send me a blended version of that. And so if I need to reamp or use an amp sem or something, then I've got the DI track. But by default, I get a blended track. Again, uh, anything that you can do to help me to ensure I'm going to get the sound you want, please do it. You know, it's only going to help both of us. It's going to save me time and it's going to make sure you get what you want. So where's bad? Now, like I said, those were in no particular order. There are a couple bonus ones I want to go over, though, because it was hard to narrow this list down to just 10. But uh, the first bonus is stuff that has effects on it that shouldn't really have effects on it. Now, this one's a little bit tough to talk about. Again, there are some things that I don't mind and other things that I do, but... 
I would guess that most of the time you should send a bone dry lead vocal, right? Like it's okay if a guitar was recorded with a delay pedal or reverb pedal or whatever. That's not the same thing as sending me a vocal that has reverb on it. I'm I'm just going to immediately send you an email and say, can you send me a dry vocal? You know, like that's not the sort of thing I'm talking about when I talk about like tying my hands, bake in some of those things that you want. Now, if you really have a certain effect uh, or something on a vocal or a guitar, something that you want to make sure that I nail, send that on a separate track. That could be really helpful. Now, this is also related to bonus number two, which is not sending a rough mix. A rough mix is so helpful to your mixer. Okay, It will give you a chance to say like, oh, look at how I process the vocal here. Look at the effect I did on the guitar here. Look at the snare sound that I had going. Maybe it's not amazing, but you'll get the idea of what I was thinking. Because sometimes I'll get tracks and, for example, they're recorded super dry. And then I make a mix that maybe is too dry and they send me their rough mix and it's like drenched in reverb. And it's like, how would I possibly have known that, you know? So that's another mistake that people make all the time, not sending a rough mix. And I'm not saying it has to be good. I know that the whole reason you're hiring a mixer is because you don't necessarily want to mix it yourself, or maybe you don't have a ton of skill with it, but at least you could give some indicator to the mixer of a direction, right? Like there are other factors, like I've gotten tracks where there are guitars and key sounds. And in my mind, I have to think, like, is this more of a rock band that has guitars and some keys? Or is this more of, like, a poppier thing with lots of keys and some guitars? That's a decision that I'm just going to have to guess unless I have a conversation with the artist. But if I got a rough mix, it would be pretty immediately clear which one's going to win, you know, or if they're supposed to be kind of equal. So definitely send a rough mix to your mixer. It doesn't have to be amazing. It doesn't have to be anything crazy or fancy. Just something that they can hear. And the last bonus is stuff being disorganized. Now, obviously, everybody has a different way of organizing their sessions, but some of the common problems I see, you know, tracks named poorly or strangely, like either they're named like Guitar One or they're named like way too overly descriptive, like Kick Inside Mike Beta 52 Neve 1073, all in one word. <laughs> uh, you know, so, you know, come up with a simple and relevant and descriptive name like Kick In. That tells me pretty much everything I need to know. Or Rhythm Electric 1 or Rhythm Elec. That's all you got to do, right? Like something simple and relevant that I will understand what that means. Now, another problem I see is I'll get a huge folder full of tracks and they're not organized in any sort of way, meaning, you know, vocal because it starts with a V is down at the bottom. And so when I drag those into my session, it's going to be down at the bottom and I'm going to have to move that up to the top. So... One of the easiest ways to cure that problem is to put a number on all the tracks. And a lot of DAWs have a simple, you know, group batch command that you can do to all your tracks, and it will render them with a number in the track. So they will show up in numerical order in the folder, and thus when I drag them into my session, they will show up in that order. And in that case, most people that I know put their vocals, you know, pretty high in the session and their drums a little bit lower, right? In my case... I have a system that I use. In my case, I use lead vocal first, backing vocals after that. Then I put main instruments, secondary instruments. Then I put 
percussion, drums, bass, and effects are at the bottom of the session. And I do that for every session, regardless of genre, regardless of what is in it. That is how I assume my sessions are going to be organized. So if you have some sort of system, whatever that is, numbering the tracks can save me a lot of time because chances are lead vocal is going to be number one or close to number one. That already saves me time. Anything that can save your mixer time is a good thing. So make sure you keep your sessions properly organized. Make sure you name your tracks well, and everyone will be happier. All right, so I hope this episode was informative. I hope it gave you some things to check and watch out for on the tracks that you send to other people uh, for mixing. I, I really hope that none of you took offense to any of these things. It's like making fun of your process or what you do or whatever. I'm just trying to say these are problems that I encounter that I end up having to fix and spend time working on, you know, that takes valuable time away from the mix. You know, sometimes I'll spend an hour or two just fixing some of these problems before I can even really start the mix. So that's a little bit of a pain. Anyway, if you have questions, comments, show episode suggestions, please send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast and help us keep going, check out patreon.com slash recordinglounge where you can become a supporter. You'll get charged every time I come out with an episode and you'll get exclusive access to the Recording Lounge Quick Tip RSS feed, which will download in your podcasts. You can only get that as a supporter. So definitely check that out. Anything you can contribute is really helpful. It helps me offset the cost of the website, the hosting for all of this stuff, and the time it takes to make the podcast. So good luck on your next recording project. Make sure you watch out for these things. I'll talk to you next time.